Welcome to Slow Stories. I'm Rachel Schwartzman. I'm a writer, consultant, and the creator and host of this podcast. For those of you just tuning in, I interview artists, entrepreneurs, and innovators who share slow stories and big ideas about living, working, and creating in our digital age. This episode begins with a story from Tree Abraham, who shares more about her book, Cyclettes, and how a new practice has helped her stay in the present moment. Here's more from Tree. My name is Tree Abraham. I'm a book designer and the art director for Mindy Kaling's new book studio at Amazon Publishing. I am also the author of an upcoming creative nonfiction book called Cyclettes, out November 1st with Unnamed Press. Cyclettes is basically a mixed-media collection of vignettes about cycles and the scrappling between my desire to make home, but also to wander, and what pace and place in my life might achieve that balance. I reference the book Staying Put, written by Scott Russell Sanders, who examines the proliferation of transience in our rapidly globalizing world. He says, If you are not yourself placed, then you wander the world like a sightseer, a collector of sensations, with no gauge for measuring what you see. I ask myself, what is a life that is settled in a place yet supple to transformation? Sanders argues that all there is to see can be seen from anywhere if one stays long enough that the stillness becomes a holy center. The themes in my book reflect a nagging that I explore daily. For me, living meaningfully requires great intention to the present moment and attention to my present environment, and I think this can only be achieved through slowing down. One new addition to my home that has contributed to this is a clear acrylic bird feeder gifted to me recently by a friend. I suctioned the feeder to my bedroom window so that in the mornings I wake to a myriad of birds that I lie and watch up close. I've spent the last week being absolutely delighted in observing how my backyard habitat adapted to the introduction of the feeder. The feeder is quite small, so for long stretches of time I've been curiously tracking the different species of bird discovering how to access the seed. Some are quick studies and others remain eternally confused. The friend also gave me a field guide book to Birds of New York, which I've been using to identify their breeds and quirks over a slow breakfast. It feels sort of like the comfort of having a pet without the guilt of keeping them caged. It's kind of amazing how the most simple interventions can command our focus if we let them. Thank you so much again to Tree for sharing. Again, the book she mentioned is Staying Put by Scott Russell Sanders, and you can order Tree's book, Cyclettes, at Unnamed Press. Now here's my conversation with Ella Francis Sanders. How do you define beauty? Where does it come from? Why is it important? For Ella Francis Sanders, these questions take center stage in her latest book, Everything Beautiful, an artful manifesto and guide that encourages readers to find hidden beauty in the world. It's easy to immediately get lost in Ella's artistry. With elegant prose and calming illustrations, Everything Beautiful provokes deep inquiry about how we've come to understand beauty and the potential we have to see it anew. But off the page, and like most of us, Ella also understands that at times it's difficult to envision where beauty fits into our demanding schedules, grief, and longing. But everything beautiful ultimately makes the case to pay attention to and embrace the little things even when it seems impossible. 
As Ella writes in the book, beauty leaves us because we are resting our heads on the wrong shoulders. It leaves us because we are always rushing to cover up discomfort and pain, because we try to fill in all the gaps in walls and feelings in other people and endings. It leaves, but luckily for you and me, it doesn't necessarily go very far. And so we stand an astonishingly good chance of finding it again. And in this interview, Ella shared more about her path to making everything beautiful, how beauty manifests for her, both online and offline, and the importance of reconsidering questions and answers. It's rare to engage in a conversation that's so openly vulnerable and honest, and I just couldn't be more honored to share Ella's story with you here. There's so much to get into, and I don't want to give too much more away. So on that note, here's my conversation with Ella Frances Sanders, author of Everything Beautiful. Outside of books is something that is almost a bit strange to think about because sort of lines between my creative work and who the rest of me is are very, they're either very blurred or they're possibly non-existent in quite a lot of ways. My sort of daily existence, as it were, feeds hugely into the things that I am, I suppose, writing about and thinking about and painting. But I suppose in a very, not ordinary, but in a factual version of me is outside of work (laughs) there is an outside the outside of work version of me is somebody who likes spending well for somebody who spends a lot of time at their desk and in front of the computer I also like spending as much of my time as possible outside and that's a very especially over the last three years has become a very important aspect of things I suppose I am sister features quite heavily I suppose in terms of identity and and the day-to-day because I'm a a three times over sister I have three of them which sometimes seems like a lot of them to be honest but they're all lovely and I guess the older I become the more I think about that in terms of identity what else do I I read a lot I think a lot I ask a lot of questions but you know that's all things that again feature in in kind of creative work I guess overwhelmingly I would define myself as somebody that thinks a lot and probably worries a bit too much and I enjoy a lot of quiet which is harder and harder to find it seems. So yeah something along these lines. Me too. Would you say that the household you grew up in was quiet? I would say that yeah I mean aside from having four daughters in the house yeah my childhood was not really a loud one Both my parents are quite quiet, thoughtful people, and nobody was ever kind of told to, you know, turn the volume down or to take their, you know, noise elsewhere or their games. The imagination was always very, it felt very free, I would say. Yeah, it was quiet, and I grew up in fairly quiet places. Cities didn't really feature that much, really at all, for kind of a couple of decades. So yeah, I would say that whether it's just sort of my natural ways of being, my kind of disposition, or the the kind of childhood bringing up part, silence and quiet are very comfortable places for me. Did your sisters teach you anything about silence or stillness? 
quiet? This is making me laugh, but I think I'm definitely the quietest one. So I think, if anything, they maybe notice that about me. Any kind of sibling, any kind of sibling relationship, whether it's good or bad or somewhere in the middle, you end up learning a lot from those people and also who those people become, I think. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm an only child, so I'm always interested in that dynamic. It seems so otherworldly to me, almost. Yeah, I can appreciate that. I can appreciate that. I had a couple of close friends growing up who were only children. I remember spending time with their families or where they lived. And it was a different kind of silence in those places Mm -hmm. because there weren't other siblings around. I feel that maybe when I, you know, as I get older, this is going to become somewhat of a a theme or a preoccupation is is kind of siblings and sibling relationships and the order of siblings, because that seems to factor in a lot to who people are. I'm the second daughter and I I think there's plenty of people who would have a lot of kind of psychological comment to say about that. (laughs) Yeah, not quite the middle, not quite the eldest. It's like a protected space almost. Mm, mm -hmm. Protected and and you don't have to be the first one to do things. So I've always liked that. (laughs) Yeah. Well, that definitely factors into the slowness and taking one's time, just having this looming societal pressure to rush to fill the space and to always sort of be moving has been a through line in at least the conversations I've had with people on this show for the last few years. But I want to go back to working for a minute. Because I think, you know, I mentioned this before we started recording, worrying and anxiety has been top of mind for a lot of people, something I've been managing, struggling with for my entire life. But in terms of identity and even beauty, I thought it was really interesting in your Instagram bio that you said you're good at worrying, but mainly that you're a writer and illustrator of books. And so I've been thinking a lot about the connection between worry and anxiety and hope and beauty And I'm wondering if you found any sort of tether or through line with those things. Worry for me has become a form of awareness, particularly self-awareness. So Mm, that's so interesting. All of, yeah, that kind of, you mentioned tether and through line. And those are definitely things that I've felt at various points. Obviously a huge, not elephant in the room, but for people who I suppose are maybe naturally quite anxious or or do tend to worry a lot the last three years has, I think, for those types of people thrown a lot, maybe a more interview. I definitely have found myself, yeah, during the pandemic, there was a kind of shift where, and I think it's starting to shift back, but there was a shift into more cyclical types of anxiety or worrying that weren't necessarily going anywhere. Whereas usually, and again, now more so, those things I find them feeding quite naturally into what I'm doing or thinking or working on. And it's been really important to remember to, I find I have to practice quite hard at it, but the turning into not necessarily linked with productivity, because that can get a bit kind of sticky feeling, but just putting them into something it's hard to describe and it sounds like maybe you're very familiar with this feeling but when you leave kind of the ends of anxiety and worry unattended they don't usually end up anywhere good and so weirdly the book that I worked on for the last few years worked on during probably one of my most intense periods of anxiety and worry and you mentioned you know worrying as a form of almost as a way to notice things, which I feel hugely. Yeah, I do say that. <laughs> it's funny that you mentioned the Instagram bio. It felt like, you know, if I if 
yeah, I was thinking if I introduce myself as good at worrying, then it gets that out of the way. And it took me, well, the other thing is it took me such a long time to realize that not everybody worried as much as me. I just kind of assumed that everybody else was as worried about the small, you know, delicate things that I was but that's not the case. So it sounds like you are also familiar with this feeling. It's all consuming sometimes. Mm. Mm. I mean, the last few months, if I'm being completely honest, I've experienced the most debilitating forms of anxiety that I've ever had as an adult. But it's humbling, you know, it's a humbling thing mm. than to ask for help, which I've done, which is also probably a whole other conversation. <laughs> but, you know, I really appreciated that sort of transparency in a space that doesn't always allow for it or promotes one version of how to be. Yeah, I think that people who are prone to anxiety and worry are so important because I feel like they're the people who can sense or notice most immediately or most intensely where things are painful or where things are wrong or where things don't feel right. I could be wrong, but to me, it seems like if you're not ever worried, if you're not, and this is a massive generalization, but I can't imagine being somebody who didn't worry about things because you would miss things that needed to be changed or that needed to be different or that weren't right whether that was in a personal context or in a much wider one this might be a big stretch so let me know if it's not but do you think worrying can be a practice is there a productive way to worry i mean i'm not sure what the people who know me would say about this and for a lot of people, I mean, you use the word debilitating, it can be hugely, you know, damaging to worry in certain ways. And for that to, you know, your body also, depending on kind of your stress levels, it can have a very negative effect. If I'm speaking for myself, and in terms of work and the things that I find myself doing, I wouldn't be making things in the same way if I weren't worrying. But I also think about times in my life where I maybe worried a bit less. And that was also good in a different way. It wasn't that I wasn't worrying. It just wasn't quite so much at the forefront of everything. So I do think that I might be trying to get back to a version more like that. But it feels productive when you can link your worrying to noticing things. Mm -hmm. For example, you know, if I worry about the houseplants and if they're doing okay and if the leaves are, you know, and then I'm noticing them. Because I'm thinking, is that new leaf going to be okay? Do I need to water it? There's lots of examples. Yeah. Yeah. I know it's kind of a tricky question, but I think that's my own version of asking questions in an attempt to rein in some of that worry and channel it into something good or nourishing. But it also, I've just been thinking about slowness as a lifelong practice and worry kind of factors into that for me when I can slow that down and think of it and channel it in a way that's going to fuel my curiosity or empathy. So yeah. That's actually very interesting that you say maybe there's a way of worrying more slowly that is more nourishing than if you're worrying really fast-paced mm, I will think about this me too <laughs> that's very interesting I am always questions is a is a big one for me and mm -hmm. it is very linked to worrying so maybe at some point we will end up you know having some thoughts about questions this is all questions though that's what's so nice <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I think it's all connected and it's slowing down to recognize the relationship between all of these things and that we don't have to silo certain parts of ourselves or how we're thinking. I don't know about you, but I've gotten really good at compartmentalizing, which I think is necessary mm. to a degree. Learning mm -hmm. to let things be a bit more fluid, go with the flow. And I want to make sure we talk about your book. 
because I feel like, again, there is this connection between beauty and worry. And before we get into that, you recently wrote about seasons. And that's something I'm also very interested in in terms of having these visual markers of time passing and of people growing. And you wrote that working as a lone creative person often feels most heightened in the autumn, the solitude of it more noticeable somehow, followed around by some kind of unnameable longing for everything to be easier, more bearable for everyone. You can't think properly with other people around, but you need them nonetheless. And regardless, these early autumn to winter weeks leave me feeling better than all the other ones. The springs and the summers don't promise me things, but the autumn does and I can't ever thank it enough. I just started writing about fall for my book and I love this and I think it's so true and I want to hear more about fall and what it promises and what makes you worry less in the fall. It says a big interesting piece for me and it's lovely to know that you think maybe some of the same things but yeah it can be hard to put it into words and I think actually that newsletter was maybe surprisingly one of the handful of times where I was interested in trying to because I think I'm a very I'm going to briefly tie it back to worrying because (laughs) because I'm somebody who worries mainly I wonder if this will make sense maybe it's outwards rather than inwards so I'm less prone to trying to define things in terms of who I am or kind of the ways in which I think or the things that I believe they're all there and they're all circulating all the time but I don't spend a lot of there's not a huge amount of talking about myself so that has led to not necessarily trying to dissect a lot of it but yeah in terms of autumn and in terms of fall I think mainly what I notice like now for example it's early autumn here where I live and there have been a few kind of really windy nights and there are suddenly a lot of leaves on the ground and the green is suddenly starting to disappear. And although there's quite a mixture of evergreen and broadleaf trees, so there is some, you know, there's some year round green, the colours are just, they always seem quite shocking. And it always seems shocking that something can let go so swiftly and so decisively. And I think I really like that. I think to me, that seems like a sort of invitation or an offering or an opportunity to look at things that I've maybe been holding on to for the last year that I don't need to. And weirdly, this autumn has been the first one for a few years now where I've felt enough kind of internal space has become available to really, really notice the changes. And this works in combination with the fact that we've recently moved somewhere new. So this is the first autumn that I've experienced in this particular place. Yeah, so it's definitely about the changes, the transition, which is, you know, those aren't original autumn concepts, as it were. But yeah, when it comes with the shortening of daylight hours, I'm quite far north here. I'm kind of in line with northern Denmark, so we're getting ready for quite a dark winter. And waking up to the dark, it becoming, you know, darker earlier and earlier in the evenings, that is a very reflective time. And there was something I wanted to mention, actually, which I'll try to remember, which was about kind of mornings and then late night kind of times. But yeah, the working alone, for me, definitely, as I wrote in that passage, for some reason gets highlighted. Perhaps also that is to do with knowing that the things around me that are changing in terms of the natural world, that's all happening in a very linked and collaborative way between those species and those trees and all of that. This is something that I need to think about a lot more. It's a gift almost because as much as unfortunately the world is changing, 
affected by climate change, there is sort of a dependency on seasons and this opportunity to come back to them and think about how they're fitting in the context of our lives and who we are. All of that resonates with me. And I think there's merit in talking about things that are maybe even cliche, but I feel like we need to hold on to some of those simple things. You don't always have to reinvent the wheel. No, it's so true. People are very quick to dismiss things that are viewed as cliche or as kind of just worn thin, worn very thin. But those things, they come back up again and again for a reason. This is something that definitely I've thought about a lot because there is a huge pressure, of course, to say things differently or say things in a more interesting way or to stand out. But a lot of what we kind of are surrounded by in terms of the natural world, it's not spending all of its energy, these individual species or individual plants even, they're not trying to spend the energy standing out. The energy gets spent on, I guess, growing and in a lot of cases working with others, which is interesting. There's something beautiful about that. And I think beauty overall, whether we're talking about art, the natural world, online, offline, it's such an interesting idea and a construct in a lot of ways. And I kind of want to have you share a little bit about your path to this book, but specifically through the lens of accidents. I believe your first book wasn't planned and, you know, not all accidents are quote unquote happy as they say, but I'd love to hear a little bit about your relationship with accidents. And, you know, have you had any beautiful accidents artistically, personally, romantically lately? (laughs) (sighs) Accidents. Well, I just want to say that I would be completely fine if we spent this time talking about worrying, but I do, yes, we will talk about the book. And I'm glad that you enjoyed it. Accidents? I'm trying to think. There's a lot of different ways that you could approach accidents. For example, I'm actually a very, it may be shocking, a very careful person. I think this comes with worrying probably, but I'm a careful person. I would say there's probably a somewhat unfortunate kind of perfectionism streak. But I think alongside that, I'm very quite free of expectation, which leaves a lot of room for things to be unexpected or accidental. So yeah, as you mentioned, my first book came about somewhat accidentally. It wasn't planned. And this was over 10 years ago, I had to decide between continuing with some study or working on this book. And I'm really glad that I did choose to work on the book because this has somehow been my job for more than 10 years, which still seems strange to to say. And I'm really thankful for that. But it is, especially in a creative context or kind of producing creative things, it is slightly odd to start from a point that wasn't particularly intentional. And I don't think that the books following the first one, I wouldn't say they were accidental. There was, you know, intention and they were desired things and I could have chosen to do something else. But there was so much figuring out that I needed to do. And it really only feels as though I'm beginning to do some of that now, which is again, a kind of slowness because you can't, I couldn't move any faster. I couldn't figure out things that I wanted to say any faster. I couldn't sort of grow or adapt the ways that I wanted to paint things any faster. But accidents, hmm, particular accidents. I don't think there have been any overwhelming accidents, personal or professional. But I mean, yeah, like a lot of the last three years has been plenty full of things that feel like accidents in terms of physically moving to places and making decisions. And I think for many people, probably it's they've ended up in 
I don't know, be it relationships or cities or jobs, kind of a bit surprising to them. Was it challenging to work on this book, knowing what was happening in the world? How were you and where were you working? Well, I think it was both a kind of salvation and also, yeah, I guess overwhelmingly that, but the whole kind of process from its very beginning to where we are now, you know, still in a pandemic, still dealing with ongoing consequences, the book has kind of been contained within it, which in some ways is really odd to think about. So for example, the kind of proposal that I finished up for this book, I finished up in a tiny place in the UK that I'd traveled back to for a funeral. This was in the summer of 2020. And at the time, I was living in France. So the first lockdown in kind of March, I'm in France at that point. Uh, So the first lockdown happened. That was probably the most isolated in terms of the kind of three years and in terms of different physical places. And we'd come back and I remember finishing up this proposal for the book. And I'd set up a kind of tiny temporary desk that looked out of a window onto a kind of roof. And I remember painting kind of the types of illustration or painting that are in this book. That time was kind of the first weeks, weirdly, where I felt more sure in what I was doing and more sure in the kind of vision, I guess, kind of visual vision. Mm-hmm. And then the kind of year and a half following that, I actually lived in Ireland. So I think probably 99% of the book in terms of the manuscript and then also all the painted pages, I was in Ireland, which I think about now and it seems quite far away. And already from this quite small distance, it feels quite dreamlike because I wrote these things and painted these things in places that I'm probably never going to go back to. And it's sort of wholly contained in this globally unusual, but also personally unusual and quite disjointed period. It was definitely keeping me tied to something working on this, which I'm very, very glad for. Why do you say you'll never go back? I won't necessarily need to, but it also, there's kind of two layers. One is a very, I guess, factual layer because my partner and I have moved back to the UK we're now in Scotland and that decision was made to be closer to family which started to feel very important and much more necessary with the pandemic so one layer of it is very factual because I don't think there are any personal reasons to return to the places where we lived and the other one is more kind of intangible because I think people will be placed variously on this kind of scale but for me it doesn't necessarily benefit me to return to things yeah definitely in a book context in a kind of written context I feel that lots of people would maybe say similar things that they're so kind of it's hard to describe but I suppose it's that I'm very conscious of the fact that I'm never really the same person you know one kind of week to the next this is something that goes back to a previous book of mine because it was this piece that was talking about the kind of idea of self and how you can never sort of be yourself in this really long, sustained, unchanging way. And when I put that alongside some kind of creative work, it's kind of a, yeah, I guess like a type of letting go of things. Maybe there's also, it's coming up because, you know, autumn and the, tree, <laughs> the trees are dropping their leaves. But yeah, this book wouldn't be the same book. Everything Beautiful wouldn't be the same had it not kind of been the product of the last three years. It feels, I don't know, not like I can't handle it too much in terms of, you know, like turning something over and over again and looking at it and looking at all its sides. But just the conditions were so unusual that I'm not really sure how it came to be that book exactly because it was also unusual. So it was an accident in some ways. 
so yeah, maybe actually that's a good thought is maybe it was some kind of accident. Yeah. This is a good place to have you read a section, particularly from Beauty You Can Translate and Beauty You Cannot. I'd love to. We go to great lengths to explain beauty, to prove it. But the thing is that the more you try to immortalize something, the more you might risk losing sight of it completely. Do we only love things when we understand them? Only love things when we misunderstand? Sometimes we try to form words to encircle beauty. We try to translate our experiences of it into something others can understand and nod at. But it is not always possible to articulate beauty in a truly satisfactory way, because we each have our own relationship with the word beauty, because the texture of memory and meaning is never the same twice. While it can be difficult to wrap language around beauty, for it to hold on to beauty in the way our hearts and our nostalgia can, words themselves can be a source of specific and genuine beauty. Words can lead us to noticing, letting us know that there is something beautiful that we might want to look out for, and also reminding us to go more gently. If you begin to peel languages apart a little bit, all sorts of beautiful words fall out, with many of them being very precise, very poetic, very of place and time and landscape of people. There is, for example, an English dialect word, smurz, that refers to a gap in the base of a hedge where a small mammal has been passing back and forth. It often takes a word for us to realise that something might carry beauty, that we might wish to call it beautiful. In Italian, it doesn't seem like a coincidence that the word for beauty, bellezza, rhymes with the word for slowness, lentezza. I love that passage. I think it's so true. We're in a culture now where finding answers or solutions is the norm when really learning to just live with the process or the nature of something that's so elusive like beauty is so hard for us. Even still, you would think over the last couple of years, things would have shifted, but it doesn't seem to be the case. No. And I think there was a kind of recognition of that quite early on in the process, which is where a lot of the book could grow out of. Because I remember one of the things that I wrote in the proposal for this book and wanted to highlight, which is that I felt there was this global thirst, I think is what I said, a a kind of global thirst for beauty, which is maybe odd to think about, given how much we use that word, how much emphasis we place on it, how quick people are to kind of talk about things that they might perceive as being beautiful but to me it felt like there was a kind of deeper thirst for the types of beauty that are genuinely nourishing yeah that was a real kind of starting point for the book and the passage that I just read that comes from this section about I guess beauty in a context of language and words felt really important to include because for most of us naming things and putting words to things is how we make sense of them and offer them to other people even and remember them in a simple way. Will you explain beauty in what I thought was a really honest and generous way? And all throughout the book, I also noticed that you listed out moments of near misses. For example, a rabbit getting across the car-streaked road just in time or breaking for a bird. Mm. These are really beautiful, miraculous things. But I wonder how you've arrived at this place where you're able to hold space for bad and beautiful things at once. Well, I would say that 
I'm not always very good at it. It takes a lot of work to try and balance those, but I'm also very, would be very quick to recognize that they kind of often come alongside each other. So that a lot of the things that maybe are narrowly terrible or genuinely terrible, it's also really important that we see or recognize beauty within those things. How have I arrived at this place? I suppose in a kind of basic way, I notice both types of things. So yes, noticing beauty feels really important. And a lot of the time now, I can't really help it. Like that's just where my attention falls or my whatever it is. So there's that kind of piece. And then maybe this also comes back to worrying, because if you worry, you will inevitably notice things that are bad. So maybe, yeah, maybe a lot of it is just kind of two sides that are kept so close together that need to be kept so close together. Maybe also it's about appreciation because, and this is something that is, you know, repeated and retold and reimagined, this idea that you can't have one without the other, that you need sadness to highlight the times when you're feeling really good or is the contrast. I guess I would say that, yeah, the, the contrast is definitely somewhere I sit in a lot. How does it show up for you online? Because I feel like that contrast is really present when we're talking about beauty in the digital space and given the nature of how volatile it can be to be online, I think it requires slowing down to be able to recognize that those things can coexist. And, you know, I'm thinking specifically about a section in the book where you talk about kind of buying into the advertised standards of beauty and consumption and curation. But yeah, I'm curious to hear about your thoughts on beauty in the context of the digital age. And do you think there is a difference between beauty and aesthetics, which is something that's so prevalent in how we curate online? I suppose the kind of reality versus internet sort of problem, for want of a better word, is something that I definitely am pretty preoccupied with because I think that a lot of creative work is just really inherently slow. And I don't know of many people, at least personally, whose ideas kind of the ideas that they're most proud of, I guess, aren't shaped or at least informed in some way by types of slowness. So to me, that kind of involves turning certain volumes down. And those things that I feel need to be turned down definitely include any kind of online, any kind of online social spaces, because it feels like all those things are just there waiting for you to say really anything that kind of comes to mind, which seems really at odds with the way that a lot of creative professions would naturally move. So yeah, a lot of the time, the internet definitely seems like the antithesis of anything slow. And I personally definitely struggle to kind of consolidate these things or incorporate the digital into sort of my professional anything because having that or maintaining that is for most of us quite non-negotiable because well, it's how we connected too which is such a funny thing yeah yeah absolutely really connected but it's hard to feel like you can put it aside I guess for any real length of time or aside for long enough to let your imagination really I don't know, really sink into something. Not that means something exactly, but just, yeah, a lot of the time it seems really at odds. So this is definitely something that I have not resolved or probably found a great balance with. (laughs) 
But I think about people who maybe don't maintain any kind of internet presence or maybe don't even have computers. And I just think, wow, they must be, I like to imagine they're doing really, really interesting things. Your brain, it works in different ways once you're kind of perpetually, routinely engaged in digital stuff. Oh, yeah. Yes, Love Stories was born in reaction to that. My life before was very online, kind of came up in the style blog era, had a site that was kind of in that first wave. There's remnants of that life on my digital presence now, but what you're saying is so true. It's just a constant willingness to unlearn all of those habits and those expectations, but it's hard. I've found a lot of inspiration and even relationships from those spaces. So it's always interesting to have these conversations and to see where people are at in terms of how it can serve them. Because I think for the most part, it's not a good space, (laughs) but it's necessary and there is good that's being done. Yeah, I have no answers. (laughs) Yeah, no answers, but you're, you're right. It's also really important to recognize or remember the good things that come of it. And definitely in terms of connection, you know, people that might otherwise be really isolated have been able to find community. And so I agree, very unsolved and very interesting. How has it impacted your relationship with Pace? Has there been any sort of direct correlation with how you start a project? And how would you describe your relationship with Pace overall? Hmm. I suppose in the context of everything beautiful, the most recent book, there was a kind of complete absence of pace in a lot of ways because it was spanned three different countries and a lot of external turmoil. But in a kind of more bedrock pace kind of context, I definitely would say that I find myself not battling with, you know, things like the computer and other ways in which I'm kind of promised maybe a more easeful working practice or really anything that suggests I might have an easier time of working or thinking I'm a bit skeptical of and I have to be quite conscious of shutting those kinds of things out kind of very unapologetically at least in kind of the first parts of the days I actually read something recently I'm someone who forgets details within the space of about 10 minutes but I'll do my best I was reading an article uh it was an interview with the writer Celestine and I think it was on the Atlantic but towards the end of it she was talking about how the times of day that she was writing at had had to change after she'd had a child so she was saying how previously she'd chosen to written really late it was kind of between 10 30 and might have even been something like two in the morning and what she said was that it was almost I think she said it was like getting ready to dream or it was a sort of dreamlike state, because it was so late. I've thought about that a lot since reading it. I was talking about technology and pace that kind of reminded me because she went on to say that since having a child, she's had to move her writing to the morning, which sounded more precarious sort of feeling. I remember her saying you can very quickly get, say, stuck in emails or sucked into emails. And it was something about, I think she used the word burning, kind of burning off the morning or morningness, which kind of thought, oh yeah, that's it. Because if you get up, and you immediately turn to your phone or your computer and you look at emails or you look at a to-do list, you lose that kind of intangible dreamlike state that you sometimes can find maybe late at night or early in the morning. So in terms of pace, to go back to that, I always, always find it best to not really be doing anything in particular first thing and to kind of leave expectations for later in the day because I don't think I do very well if I have set out a kind of not a rhythm exactly, but just 
a plan. You know, sometimes there are things that you have to do by a certain time, and that is great. And I procrastinate a lot with those, and I, <laughs> Me too. I'm in denial about a lot of them. <laughs> but yeah, I guess I maybe don't understand people who pace themselves really well. Maybe that's it. Maybe that's why I don't really have an answer to that. But I. Again, I think for me, it's slightly, this is actually a lot of people now, but my kind of personal at home life is so mashed in that I kind of move from, you know, my desk to the kitchen or whatever it is. And it doesn't feel like an interruption, but for a lot of people it would. So I think pace is often just the things that happen in the day, which sounds a bit odd, but I think that is maybe the case. Yeah. No, I love that. I would agree with that in terms of my current setup. It's very fluid. And I think that's probably one of the most tangible answers I've heard in terms of how people describe pace, because pace is life. It's just movement and choice. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad that made some sense. (laughs) Well, I think it goes back to trying to find the words or define Mm. sometimes we can't. Yeah. People are very quick to provide answers, I guess or provide answers that are maybe the expected answers. And I'm definitely a proponent of both questions and answers too. that maybe sound different to, to what people might usually expect. I want to get into questions, you know, more of the liminal space between questions and answers, mm-hmm. but I think it might be good to have you read another passage from Everything Beautiful. I would love to. Okay, so... This is a passage from a chapter called Beauty Should Not Have Ceilings. To a large extent, we are no longer free to choose which parts of the word beauty mean something to us, and we are the only creatures where that is so. Everything else in the world is free to choose its own beauty. Honeybees choose their flowers without worrying what other honeybees will think, or wondering whether visiting a particular lilac tree will increase their social standing. But for us, it has become complicated, and without necessarily knowing that we are doing it, we often choose our beauties based on what other people might think or how they might judge us. How strange to have seemingly progressed through all of this difficult and terrible history and to not be very liberated at all, not free to choose what is beautiful to us without judgment from others. Our choices begin to look less like choices and more like consumption and our desires start to resemble trapped desires rather than independent ones. We get stuck wanting things, wanting beauty, simply because everything and everyone else seems to be pointing in a certain direction. We are very often weighed down by definitions of beauty that we did not ask for and that do not benefit or serve us. Of course, we now use the word beautiful quite casually to mean many other related things like good or excellent or to try to persuade someone that yes, they really do look fine in that new sweater. Our use of beautiful, it has been argued by some, has become frivolous, although I would argue that it has not, and that frivolity itself can be quite a beautiful thing. Yes, beautiful is saturated, very saturated, but it is our definitions that need to change, not how often we use the word. Our individual languages often lack adequate words for the variety of beauties we are faced with, And so naturally one begins to wonder, if we use the word beautiful from morning until night, what would it mean? And if the definition were to be left completely open, like the crater of a volcano, would it be empty of meaning or full? Beauty does not have a ceiling. At the moment, we are looking again and again in the same small corner for beauty. 
we pick up the same stones over and over, looking at their undersides and wondering why nothing has changed, why we feel the same. If you can see beyond this small corner, beyond the ordinary and culturally stuck definitions, something else starts to come into view. And that thing is an array of delicate spectacular that you won't be able to articulate at first. This, this thing you are struggling to speak of, is the new beauty. The beauty that asks you to slow down to your animal speeds and to notice when the stars are looking sad. I always get chills at that last line. <laughs> I was reading down the page, and so my head was turning, like my neck was folding over, and I thought, I'm soon not going to be able to inhale. I just, I kept, my neck kept folding down and my head was, oh, but I'm glad. We'll take a breath. It's funny, you know, we've been talking a lot about beauty online in the digital space. So I kind of want to refocus us back to our bodies. Mm. And I'm curious, how does beauty manifest for you first in terms of the senses? Do you see it? Do you hear it? Where does that begin? I think it's definitely visual primarily because although that is, you know, very quickly folded into things like a smell or a sound I think for me being a quiet person it's often noticed visually because it's maybe from a distance it's often very very small and maybe doesn't make any sound or doesn't smell a particular way but then I think it can also be just those things so it can be just a smell or just a sound and that's enough even without a kind of visual accompaniment When I was going through everything beautiful, this may be a very specific detail, so bear with me, but as I was going through the book, I noticed that it doesn't have any page numbers. And I actually thought that was really beautiful because it really forces you to pay attention to where you are in the reading experience. Was that intentional or is that just something I'm hyper aware of? (laughs) No, it was was a conscious decision or choice, I suppose. Primarily, I really liked the idea that somebody might feel a bit lost inside it hopefully in a good way but also we are really quick to want to point things or reference things or tell people about things and there was this part of me that kind of liked imagining sort of inability of people to mention a page number or mention something on a page and that if they couldn't do that maybe somebody else would have to go and find it for themselves This has definitely come back to haunt me because speaking (laughs) about the book or referencing things in a kind of interview or publicity context has become very difficult because nobody can reference a page number and I can't find it either, you know? So I am very glad for the decision overall. I felt like it was probably intentional and I think it just speaks to the themes that you're exploring. Beauty is something we try to hold on to, but in this way, you're almost asking us to hold it and then let it go. Yeah, yeah, because if you find something in a kind of literal way to explain what you just said, you, you know, if you find something you like on a page, it might take you a while to get back to it, which I kind of like as an idea more broadly, I think, that maybe it takes a while to return to things that we need to or that we want to. Otherwise, it's very easy, you know. Well, it goes against the culture of immediacy and it, you know, puts us back in a headspace of discovery and curiosity you might think you're going to find something on that page you're you're trying to reference something else might catch your eye and then it leads you down a whole other unexpected path so i definitely appreciate that i'm glad i think it will be infuriating to plenty of other people so (laughs) 
Well, they might not be ready for the book. I'm also a really big believer in books coming into our lives at the right times. I don't know if you are. <laughs> yeah, well, I think I think I am. And that I know there's that saying about not being able to step into a, a river twice, something like this, or you're never stepping in the same river twice. I'm strangely somebody who doesn't often reread things or rewatch things. Or maybe that's not strange, but I think that is maybe one way in which I kind of adhere to the things arriving when they need to arrive or just that we're ready at different times to pay attention to different things. It was definitely something that a part of me worried about with this book because I kind of thought I'm writing all these things, I'm trying to define these particular ideas in a slightly different way and I'm trying to hopefully get people to reconsider some or a lot of what they're thinking and there was definitely a worry of maybe this is so slow and so quiet that people just won't hear it or they won't notice or maybe they're not going slow enough to even absorb but as you say I think people read things when they're kind of ready to and it never feels right to rush people into reading anything so I'm happy for it to land where it lands. Reading generally can be a very solitary experience but there is space within everything beautiful to explore in that way you're almost inviting readers into the conversation or into the practice of finding beauty in the world and I'm curious you know shaping our own definitions of beauty and really just owning or finding the agency to feel confident in what we deem beautiful. What is the relationship between community and beauty? When is it okay to invite other people's perspectives in? That's a really good question. I think this is a very individual thing. I think it would be nice if people feel more able to kind of hold things closely to themselves and not need to share them. I'm conscious that we were trying to drift away a little bit from the digital but that is definitely a way in which people are held to a kind of sharing standard and I find myself really wanting to resist that there's um, a quote not for the life of me remember who said or wrote this but they're saying something about kind of witnessing astonishing things or observing beauty and telling nobody about it which would be so difficult for a lot of people to do now there's such encouragement to when anything interesting or you know beautiful happens to us, the feeling is that we need to tell somebody about it. So I think it would be interesting for people to hold more and hold more more closely, but also there's a kind of trust that has to be explored when you share something that you've held closely with somebody else. And I think that's very beautiful in itself, the kind of trusting that somebody else might be interested in what you personally find to be beautiful or letting somebody else see it through their own senses and experiences a lot of that feels very tender to me yeah kind of feelings of tenderness and protectiveness I think it can feel really I think validating is the wrong word but when somebody kind of responds genuinely and positively to something that you have noticed or pointed at I can't really put it into words, but it feels like a very important human type of connection or recognition and something that can be between two people or maybe more. But I do think, to me at least, that a lot of the most powerful or potent types of beauty or the kinds of beauty that I'm encouraging people to notice more are very small and often very ephemeral, which is maybe why it's difficult to translate that to a kind of sharing. 
think it's so interesting though to link trust to part of this never really thought of it in that way yeah I think it's a kind of vulnerability as well that you are carrying around when you have seen something and it's affected you or meant something to you personally I hope that people will perhaps come away from reading it knowing or believing that they don't have to explain their beauties to anybody else and that even if they do and the reaction maybe isn't one that they had hoped for or imagined, it doesn't necessarily mean that that thing that they found beautiful isn't beautiful anymore. And trusting that that's okay. Yeah, And that they're not wrong for that. I think there's a lot of expectation about right and wrong. There's a right way to tell a story. There's a wrong way to receive it. So maybe changing the goalposts or the boundaries around that is part of this process. Yeah, I just think it can be much richer and much more nuanced than we are encouraged to believe or accept. Absolutely. And I think, you know, navigating that process requires asking questions. And so let's talk about questions. You mentioned questions are really integral to your work and your practice. And this is something that I ask all of my guests on this podcast. So I'm really, really excited to hear what you have to say. But at this point, is there a question that you hope people start asking you more often in the context of beauty, attention, slowness, or even worry? (laughs) Mm, That is exceptionally difficult to to kind of funnel into something specific. I suppose it feels to me like we kind of societally have been asking a lot of the same questions. And this maybe doesn't seem obvious at first because you can ask the same question in a lot of different ways. But I do think that the questions are going to need to change quite a lot and that people are going to need to be more open to the answers looking different. So this seems like an impossible thing that you've asked me to do. (laughs) Uh, I want there to be a nice, neat something. And I'm not so sure that there will be. I mean, in the same way that I said earlier that It took me a long time to realize that other people weren't worrying as much as I was. I also was kind of surprised that people weren't necessarily asking as many questions as I did. Because it feels like I, I mean, I do, I fall asleep and I'm still asking questions, (laughs) which is not always appreciated by other people. (laughs) And I have to limit the questions. But I think that's the important piece is that people ask questions differently and they also answer questions differently. So I suppose I'm excited by the idea that other things can be answers. So a book can be an answer or a painting can be an answer or even just leaving the house to go for a walk can be an answer. And then all those things can also be questions. So I've realized I'm not actually, you know, I'm not narrowing this down. I'm actually widening it a bit. I would like to think we can ask more of the types of questions that people or most people think are unimportant or that aren't worthwhile. And this makes me think about the kinds of questions that young children ask because they're not questions that we ask after a certain time. They're often really important. And often as adults, we can't answer those questions, which I find really interesting. The kinds of questions that, I don't know, people would dismiss. And I wish that I could give you a a nice, neat question or (laughs) kind of answer, but it's often it's the questions too that are a bit uncomfortable and that challenge things that we've thought for a really long time. And a lot of people are very quick to run away from those kinds of questions. So I think maybe just more uncomfortable ones. There's a kind of insensitive uncomfortable, and then there's a sensitive 
uncomfortable. And maybe some combination of both. I'm not sure this theory needs some refining. Well, our conversation has covered so much. It's kind of hard to put into words how much I've taken away from it. So thank you. And towards the end of everything beautiful, you remind readers that beauty is both a beginning and an ending. And in terms of leaving readers and listeners with a new take on beauty, pace, and everything in between, I'd love to bring our conversation to a close by having you read one final passage from everything beautiful, specifically from the section, The New Beauty. I'd love to. Are you ready to shake off the definitions of beauty that are diminishing and undeserving of your light-filled body? Where, now, to begin? Does this feel like a beginning? Does this feel like an end? The new beauty, quite simply, does not make you feel terrible. It does not make you wonder whether you are enough. Instead, the new beauty serves as small miracles of confirmation and clarity that you are enough that you always were. It does not have to be explained away to others, and it cannot be sold. The new beauty moves more slowly than the things you knew as beauty before. The new beauty is questioning the way things have been, the way things are, and putting forward ideas for futures in which we have more time to gaze at one another, more time to build cities with small stones by the sea. The new beauty is radical because it allows us to love ourselves in spite of being told not to. It is caring for yourself in whatever way that looks like for you. It is letting others love themselves without interruption or judgment or shame. The new beauty is a fierce noticing. Much of the time you can let it be wordless, but on occasional nights it will be shouting curses at the planets you cannot see. The new beauty embraces symmetry as a form of equality. Symmetry is a pull toward fairness and justness and protective of the fragile. And spending time cultivating a new beauty does not mean that we wish to become more literally beautiful ourselves, but it will certainly cover our insides with everything beautiful. Our emotional interiors become more richly varied in understanding, and as individuals we stop needing to be so loud and central to everything. The new beauty moves us away from the overwhelmingly self-centred, and toward a version of events where other important things, beauties, carefulness, can be placed at the centre of our rotating. The new beauty is a bit like catching glimpses of your own heart from the other side of a river. Inclusive beauty, nuanced beauty, beauty that only wants the best for you. Begin at slow. Begin at winter sunlight and the condensation that sweeps up from the edges of window frames. Begin noticing beauty before breakfast, when you're hungry. Begin with rest and warmth, and trying to put worrying to one side, so that even if just for half a day, you can fill the other side with your goodness and your possibility, and with sewing buttons back on. Begin at noticing why your neck aches on the left, then try not to feel frustrated when a sock goes missing in the machine. Begin with watching a candle flame in the dark for five whole minutes, letting yourself collapse when it all gets too much. It is all too much these days, and often. Begin with failing, and with that being alright. That was my conversation with Ella Francis Sanders, author and illustrator of Everything Beautiful, 
You can purchase Everything Beautiful anywhere books are sold, though we recommend supporting local and independent bookstores if you can. You can also follow Ella on social at Ella F. Sanders. Stay tuned as we'll be sharing highlights from this episode on our own channels at Slow Stories Official on Instagram and at Slow Stories Pod on Twitter. I'm Rachel Schwartzman, and you've been listening to Slow Stories. Thank you so much for tuning in.